Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm speaking with Lynn Downey about her biography of the businessman and philanthropist Levi Strauss, entitled Levi Strauss, The Man Who Gave Blue Jeans to the World. Lynn, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, let's see. Um, I was always the family archivist growing up. I was that wacky kid who collected every brochure and postcard and pasted them into scrapbooks. So when I went to library school at the University of California, Berkeley in the late 80s, I did the archives track. Um, I knew in my heart I was an archivist, but I also love to write and I love to research history. And uh, so my undergraduate degree is in history. Um, After... um, uh, graduate school. I did a couple of archives jobs, and then I landed the dream job, which was to be the first archivist historian for Levi Strauss and Co. in San Francisco. That's actually a, a bit surprising to hear that you were the first, and, and, and that's something that I want to get into a bit because, as you explained at the beginning of your book, it is kind of part of why it is that you ended up writing it, uh, writing a biography of, of Levi Strauss. Um, exactly. It was truly an amazing job. And when you consider the company was founded in 1853, um, to have the to be the very first archivist was was astonishing in, in so many ways. Um, a lot of corporations started hiring their own archivist, in-house archivists and historians in the 80s. I started with the company in 89. Um, and because companies had begun to realize how much their history and their heritage were good uh, for marketing. Certainly when it came to Levi Strauss and Co., it was good for product design. Um, They had a small collection of clothing, quite a lot of documents from the public relations and communications departments, um, the executives, and and a lot of marketing materials, three-dimensional marketing materials, photographs. So there was this very eclectic collection and they knew that they needed to have it organized and wanted to hire someone trained to do it. And I was the lucky girl that got the job. (laughs) As you explained, though, for all of their archives, there's also an enormous amount missing because we're talking about a company that, as you just said, was has been in San Francisco since 1853, which means that they were there in 1906 when you had uh, a fire that, that that devastated so much of the city. And as you explained in the book, you know, wiped out a lot of the uh, a lot of their uh, archives at that point. Yeah, that stupid earthquake. Um, <laughs> You know, you know, when you go to work as a historian for a San Francisco company founded before 1906, you're not going to have a lot of 19th century records. So that was not a surprise. Um, What was sort of a shock, though, was to realize that I had almost nothing about the founder. Levi Strauss, the man, died in 1902. All of his personal effects, anything that he left behind as a as a man was in the house of a nephew, which was destroyed in the earthquake and fire. So not only did the corporate records get lost, um, uh, actually, as 
with so many buildings, the corporate headquarters survived the earthquake, but did not survive the fire. The building went down um, on the very first day of the three-day firestorm. I mean, employees were in there throwing ledgers into a fireproof safe as the flames were creeping up Battery Street. Um, but the the nephew, Jacob Stern, uh, Lee Bestrass's nephew, his home was unfortunately lost to fire. So the man himself was was even more of an enigma than the company's beginnings. Now, that's the kind of thing that might discourage some people from undertaking a biography of Levi Strauss. Why did you decide that uh, one needed to be written? Well, in the course of my job, uh, which was to be the, the spokesperson for company history, um, I had to uh, build up the company archives, uh, especially in the clothing arena. When I, when I began the job, there was a huge interest, as there still is, in vintage Levi's. So I began to acquire a lot of vintage clothing for the collection, which designers then used to create new items and new products. And, and so the, the design piece and the employee piece was a huge part of this. So the whole time I'm doing my job, which is also to share the history with uh, the media, which I did all over the world. It was also my job to, to document the history. But when I first started my job, I, I had to learn the company history very quickly. And I read everything that was in the archives. I read a lot of newspaper articles, things that the company had written, and things just didn't add up for me. The story of how Levi Strauss came to America, the story about how the first blue jeans were made. As my trained mind went through it, I kept thinking to myself, this doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> I'm, I've got two tracks going on in my job. I'm doing my job, my everyday job. And then whenever I could, I'm collecting information about Levi and about the company to try to make sure that I'm telling the story correctly. I was the um, on-site employed company historian for 24 years. Um, I left the company in 2014, and I spent the next year writing the biography because it took me 24 years to gather enough information about Levi to be able to write the book. And writing the book was to set the record straight. The man had become this cardboard cutout of a person, of a founder, when he was, you know, he was, oh, the man who invented blue jeans and, and the stories are, were just so stupid. I don't even want to talk about them. But um, <laughs> the, the, he, needed, he, he needed to be brought out of these shadows and the truth about him told because the truth about his life was so much more interesting than the mythology that had come around about his life. Well, let's get into some of the details about that life and, and the things that made it so fascinating. Uh, who was Levi Strauss and, 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 and you know, where was he born and, and what were his early years like? He was born Leub Strauss in uh, Budenheim, which is in the Franconian region of Bavaria. Um, it, it, you can basically just say Bavaria, but the, the little town of Budenheim, um, if you go to Budenheim, and you tell them you know that they are actually Franconians and not Bavarians, they will buy you a beer because they're really happy that you know that they're from the Franconian region of Bavaria. And I've been there. Um, they're lovely people and they make very good beer. So he was born the youngest of uh, seven children to Hirsch Strauss. And um, he and his sister, his, uh, his sister Fugela, were the youngest, uh, the two sister of, or the two um, siblings of Hirschstrauss's second wife, Rebecca. Um, Hirschstrauss was a widower and he had already had um, five children. 
So he was the youngest in this little town. Now, the, the town of Buttenheim is um, fairly, if, if you think about geography, it's fairly close to Nuremberg. Um, and it was a region in which since 1813, uh, People uh, of Jewish descent, people who um, had been Jews for generations, were living under this terrible thing called the Juden Edict, uh, which was a this law that went into effect, which basically wanted to make good citizens out of Bavaria's Jews by not letting them be Jews. Uh, there were these incredibly draconian laws. Um, there had to be a, a, a list in every village called the Matrikel of every Jewish person in this village. Only the oldest son of every family was allowed to marry, for example. Uh, young men were not allowed to be peddlers or cattle traders under this, new, under this system, the traditional trades and occupations for Jewish men. So not only could hardly anybody get married, there were very few men for the young women to marry. And instead of becoming cattle traders or peddlers or doing something else traditional, young men like Loeb and his, uh, and his brothers um, had to become small craftsmen or farmers, and it was it, it just became untenable. So in 1837, a number of, of people, I think it was 18 young people, just left Butenheim. Most of them went to America. Two of the oldest Strauss siblings did go to America. In 1840 and 1841, two more, Donatan and Littmann, went to America, where they became Jonas and Lewis. Um, and here Strauss died. Levi, his mother, and his two sisters, uh, Fugula and his half-sister, Myla, got in a boat, took the awful trip across the Atlantic to New York City, where his two older brothers were living. And he, as soon as he could, registered to become an American citizen and was on with the next phase of his life. So he gets to America, and what's waiting for him when he gets here? What, what is what is the, what of his... Uh... His, his, what is his, the family members who've already traveled there, what have they done in advance? And, and, and what opportunities await him once he arrives? He was lucky. He, his mother, and his, and his two sisters were lucky. Their older brothers had already established themselves in what is now the Lower East Side, but at the, the time was called Kleindeutschland, Little Germany because there were so many Germans, both Christians and Jews, living in this area. And they were uh, urban peddlers. They uh, would go around to stores all over New York City and um, sell items that they had purchased from wholesale manufacturers of laces and boots and what we call dry goods. So these two brothers had already set up a business and they were now, uh, it was Jonas and Lewis and it was Jay Strauss and brother. They had their own business as urban peddlers. So they expected that their younger, their youngest uh, brother, who is now 19, um, to jump into the family business, which he did. He began to learn the business. He began to learn the language. Then in 1850, the census taker comes to the Strauss household. Everybody's living together in one household above a small manufactory. It's possible the Strauss brothers had a small manufacturing, small factory of their own, but all of the records about Jay Strauss and brother are completely gone. And so the, the New York end of my research was also a black hole. Anyway, um, so the census taker comes to the Strauss household, takes down everybody's name. There's nobody named Loeb, L-O umlaut B. Suddenly there's someone named Levi. What had he done? He changed his name. He changed his name because he had already decided to become an American citizen, and he knew that Americans could not say Loeb. So he picked a name, Levi, that was 
true to his faith as well as to the faith of his Christian neighbors, all of whom read the Bible. Um, and he very quickly learned the business, learned the language, um, and this is all happening when the gold rush is also happening in California, and pretty soon that also made a big impact on his life. Uh, I just uh, want, want to, uh, before we uh, you know move Levi to California, I, I want to make, uh, I was wondering if you could perhaps just maybe explain a bit as to the transition, how they go from being peddlers to being these wholesale merchants, because it, it, you described this very interesting transition that's taking place, what it was like for them to build up this business, the, the, the amount of labor that went into it, because that's part of, as you explained in the book, that's part of what ultimately leads Levi to go to California in the first place. Yes, yeah, so many um, Jews who had left Germany, Bavaria, all that area, and come to New York um, had taken up peddling. And uh, the Strauss's father, um, Hirsch, was a peddler. So this was already in uh, their knowledge base um, as the sons of a peddler. Now, their father had been the kind to tramp all over the countryside with a pack on his back. Um, the, it's pretty sure that the family could not afford for him to have a horse and wagon. So when they get to New York, the idea of peddling things door to door is just completely natural. Plus, there are a lot of other peddlers in New York um, that they can learn from, um, possibly even you know, worked for early on. Um, and there are so many small little factories all over uh, uh, the Lower East Side, Klein Deutschland, where they could get the goods that they needed. And there were so many different kinds of customers. They could go down to the docks um, uh, to sell their wares. They could themselves sell to small stores. They were the wholesalers. They could sell to small stores. So they never had a retail store. The Strausses did not have a storefront where they you know, sat behind the counter and sold to the public. It was all wholesale, which was really a very good way to make money and the way that a lot of Jewish men did make money. And they took that with them when they went to California. So you've alluded to this fact that Levi Strauss goes to California in, in 1853. And yet, yeah, and, and in one sense, and, and, and given the connection with the gold rush, it's a perfectly understandable move. And yet what you describe in terms of the journey and the fact that, that you have this one sense going out there also underscores, you know, just what an undertaking it was. What was that led them to decide to make that effort to go out to California and establish the business? And was there a sense perhaps that there were too many brothers uh, in on the East Coast to, uh, to, to be gainfully, you know, properly employed in the business? Or was it more just a sense of that was where the future lay? Well, I wish I knew what the dinnertime conversation was like in the Strauss household <laughs> during the gold rush. <laughs> Let me tell you. Um, you know, so many Jewish men were leaving New York and going to California to set themselves up either as wholesalers in San Francisco or as retailers in the gold rush country. And they're writing letters back to their remaining relatives in New York. And they're, everybody's either reading the letters to everybody in the neighborhood. It was obvious that California was an incredible um, opportunity um, to get out of a very crowded city. Um, and I think the, the Strauss family had already shown themselves to be enterprising. They left Bavaria. There was nothing for them. There was nobody for them to marry. You know, Lewis and, and uh, Jonathan, John, Lippmann and, or, uh, jo Jonathan and Lippmann um, left to go to New York for more opportunity. If they see another opportunity, they're going to go for it. I think it was pure, hey, we've got a good business here. Um, what they really decided to do was create the West Coast branch 
of Jay Strauss and brother, or later on it was known as Jay Strauss brother and co. So it was, hey, Levi, you're the youngest, you're unmarried, guess what you get to do? You get to go to California and set up our, our West Coast operation. And the one thing I wish as the historian that I knew and I'll never know is did he jump or was he pushed? You know, <laughs> I mean, was it his idea? When they told him, did he like the idea? And we'll never know. And it makes me nuts. So what was this journey like? And, and, and how, how did he uh, set himself up in San Francisco? And what was the, that area like when he arrived there? There were a number of ways to get to California. The quickest, though certainly not no less dangerous, was the Panama route. Um, but before Levi did get um, onto, a, onto a ship for Panama, um, he had probably already, through letters, secured a warehouse, a warehouse space, some sort of space on the waterfront in San Francisco. And he probably got some letters of introduction from some of the merchants in New York City to take with him to California. Then he and his brothers put barrels of dry goods in the hold of a clipper ship called the Winged Racer, which was sent out of New York in December of 1852, I believe it was, to go around the Horn. And it would arrive in San Francisco after Levi did so that he could get set up and he'd have uh, this inventory of dry goods ready to go. So the Panama route, this is how you, this is how you did it. Levi left New York. Well, first of all, January 31st, 1853, Levi became an American citizen. He couldn't leave until he had that piece of paper with him. So now he is a full American citizen. Five days later, he's on a boat to Panama. You take a boat to from New York City to the uh, Caribbean side of the Isthmus of Panama, which is only 50 miles wide. People going to the Gold Rush country had been crossing the Isthmus for years because it was literally you know, only 50 miles wide. Now, there was a railroad that was being built at this time. When Levi arrived in February of 1853, he was able to get on a railroad, but it was only completed about halfway across. So he had to get off um, about halfway across and get in a boat and go on the Chagres River to another small town where he spent the night. And then he had to rent a mule from, I believe, Wells Fargo. <laughs> I believe that's where they, who was renting mules at the time. And they had to take a mule the final 18 miles down to Panama City on the Pacific side of the Isthmus. There he caught a Pacific Mail steamship called the Isthmus, which took him up the California coast and he arrived in San Francisco on March 14, 1853. The ship, the Winged Racer, arrived in May. So he was able to get set up, check on his warehouse, make sure everything was set up. Now, luckily for historians, uh, San Francisco had been printing city directories, directories of its citizens, since 1850. But we don't find a home address for Levi for until about 1856. So it's possible, like many other young men, he was sleeping in his flea-ridden warehouse until he found quarters, you know, living quarters elsewhere. But what he had to do was he spent that time very likely walking around San Francisco and making contacts because he's going to be a wholesaler. He's not going to have a retail store, just like his brothers. He's a wholesaler. So he is going around San Francisco, where there are plenty of clothing stores and plenty of dry goods stores. And this is all going to be clothing, boots, uh, hats, shoes, stockings. It's not hardware and it's not food. It's, it's soft goods, another, you know, another way to think about it. And there are plenty of stores in San Francisco that would take his goods from him when he had them. So he was probably cultivating his customer base right off the bat. 
So he is going out there and he's, uh, you know, pounding the ground. He's, uh, in, he's going out there. He's, he's meeting all these people in the city. How successful is he, uh, early on? And what's, and, and what's his status in the city in the 1850s into the 1860s? Oh, it's hard to know, you know, earthquake, fire. Hmm. Um, but we know that we have one tantalizing little hint about how well he was doing. In 1857, the company put, his company, Levi Strauss, and he, by the way, he was able to name the business after himself. So all of the old billheads just say Levi Strauss. He didn't have to be representing J. Strauss and brother, which I find delightful. Mm-hmm. Um, so in 1857, Levi Strauss put $76,000 in gold on a steamship bound for New York, because this is what he would do, is he would take payment for his dry goods in gold dust, which could be converted into bullion. And that would be put on a steamship, which went down to Panama. And then since 1855, when the railroad was completed, went across the isthmus, put on another steamship and up to New York to his brothers so they could buy more wholesale goods to put in the belly of a clipper ship to send to San Francisco. So it was a great system. However, in 1857, the ship that left the Isthmus for New York was called the Central America. And it went down in a hurricane off of South Carolina in September of 1857. So Levi Strauss and his brothers lost $76,000 in gold, which is, you know, a couple of million dollars today. And the company didn't fold. The company just kept on going. So somehow even this huge loss did not affect their ability to do business. So remember, there are business, there's a business on both ends of the, both sides of the country, both coasts. So they must have had some sort of cushion to be able to survive that loss. And by the time the Civil War comes along um, in the 1860, uh, Levi Strauss is uh, well known and well off enough. Um, he's very a, a very prominent supporter of Abraham Lincoln, a very prominent supporter of the Union. He's, he's a part of a group um, called the Committee of 34, which is out looking for people, you know, treasonous, you know, hidden Southerners in California, of which there were many. Um, so he was he was very, very well known and financially doing very well to the point that by the 1870s, he had a sales force on hand um, to help him fan out and sell his dry goods to what are what was now a customer base, certainly all throughout California and Nevada. Um, by the 1870s. Um, in, uh, it's a little bit hard to know when he really began to move into other states, but um, he, was, he was beginning to fan out. Um, he himself had probably gone up to the Gold Rush country early on to, to meet customers on his own, but pretty soon he was able to send a sales force out. And so he was doing that well. So you're talking about a person who, by you know the end of the 1860s, he is you know established. He's this you know name that we we see in, in the surviving records as being this very prominent businessman. How then do we get from him as this prominent uh, dry goods wholesaler to being the man that we know for blue jeans? <laughs> uh, one more piece I do want to to talk about before then is his family. Um, in 18, around 1856, his sister Fugula, who luckily for her had changed her name to Fanny, um, and her husband David Stern and their uh, one child um, moved from New York City to San Francisco to be with Levi. Fanny was Levi's only full sister. Um, they were very close, and she decided to, and their mother, um, they decided to come out 
and uh, live with Levi in San Francisco. Certainly within three years after his arrival, it was obvious he was going to make it. And he, his mother wanted to be with him and his sister and her family wanted to be with, with him. And so David Stern, his brother-in-law, joined the business. Um, another brother-in-law uh, would come out occasionally from New York, as well as his brother, Lewis. He went back and forth. He sort of worked both ends of the business. So by, 18, uh, by 1867, by 1866 or so, uh, the, the company Bill had say Levi Strauss and Co. because he now has family partners. And by 1867, they were doing well enough that they moved into a beautiful building on Battery Street near Pine Street. Um, near Embarcadero Center today, if anybody knows San Francisco. Um, and they had a, a beautiful multi-story building where uh, the wholesale business continued to thrive. So this is where he is. His family's with him. They're actually all living together. Um, by the time he was in his 40s, he was uh, uh, just an Uncle Levi and living with his family. Um, he never married. And um, he's very well known. He has customers all over the place. So one day, in July of 1872, he gets a letter from one of his customers. And this is a man named um, Jacob Davis, who's living in Reno. Jacob Davis was also an immigrant, and he was from Riga in Latvia, which is today Latvia, but at the time was Russia, I believe. And he had come to the United States as a young man. He was a tailor. He'd worked all over the, the East Coast for a while, came to California, sort of wandered around California, went up to Canada for a while, got married, started a family, kept trying to do other businesses, but always fell back on tailoring because it was his greatest skill. Though he was also an inventor. He actually had a patent for a, a kind of clothes press. And he also had a brewery um, here and there. So by, by, 18, by 1872, Jacob Davis and his family are living in Reno, and he's a tailor. So he buys his fabric and his um, thread and some of his sundries, like buttons and things, from the Levi Strauss & Company uh, Wholesale Warehouse in San Francisco. It's one of the best known. So a woman comes into his tailoring shop, and it's, it's in um, uh, 1871, uh, January of 1871. And this woman says, my husband needs a new pair of pants. Um, all of his pants are falling apart. Could you please make him another pair? So he gives her a piece of string and says, here, measure his waist and bring me back the string. So she brings back the string so he knows what size to make. And he's making his pants out of a fabric called duck, which is like a, it's a canvas-like um, fabric and sort of an off-white. And, you know, the woman had said, you know, could you do something to make these pants last longer? Because Reno, there were there were teamsters, there were lumberjack, there were agricultural workers, railroad workers, lots of laboring men in Reno. So he's making these pants and he also had a side business making horse blankets and tents. And he happens to look over at this table where he was making a horse blanket and he used little metal rivets to attach the leather straps to some of these horse blankets that he's making. And he thinks, huh. I wonder if I put these metal rivets in the sort of points of strain on these pants, if that would make them stronger. So he does that. He puts a few, uh, the base of the button fly um, on the back where there's a little cinch and a, like a, a little strap on the back of the waistband, which you did before you had that before belt loops, sells the pants to the woman. He, he, she comes back and tells him $3. Oh, by the way, premium price for a pair of pants. It's practically one day's pay for a minor. And he hears through the grapevine that the guy loves the pants. He sees him wearing the pants around town. And pretty soon, people come into his tailoring shop and they say, hey, I want one of those pants like so-and-so had. And he realizes he has a money-making idea on his hands. And remember, 
he was a he was a kind of a, a, a frustrated inventor and he loved tinkering. So he realizes that he's got something going and he wants to mass manufacture and mass market his new idea, but he doesn't have the money for it. So what does he do? July of 1872, he writes a letter to his supplier, the very well-known and known to be honorable Levi Strauss. He doesn't know him personally. He puts a few pairs of pants and a letter in a package, sends it by Wells Fargo Express down to San Francisco. And in this, he says, in this uh, letter, he says, Dear Mr. Strauss, I'm one of your customers. Um, I have created this new pair of pants. I think if we partnered up, we could make a lot of money. If you would pay for the patent and the manufacturing, we could make a lot of money together. Now, this package did not include a non-disclosure agreement. This, I mean, he just sends this money-making idea off to Levi Strauss. And why? Because he knew Levi Strauss was a man of honor. And if he wasn't interested, he would tell him no. Well, according to documents in the National Archives, which I was very lucky to find, Levi Strauss wrote on this letter within days, call the lawyer and sign this man up, or words <laughs> to that effect. So Levi knew a money-making idea when he saw it. Now, the thing to remember is that Levi Strauss was not a manufacturer. He didn't make anything. He he paid the people to make stuff, which he sold to his customers. This was part of his genius. He was able to see past his own skills, his own business, to see the potential of something new, which I, I find truly fascinating. And I think is one of the one of the things that's always sort of missing in a lot of those mythologies about Levi is that he he knew that this was a great idea and he was going to get in on it. And that actually gets to one of the most fascinating parts of your book for me, which is this effort that they undertake to establish that what uh, Jacob Davis has developed is actually new because you describe the, the challenge they have in terms of proving that this is not just a variation on something else or that this is so inconsequential that you can't possibly grant a patent for it because that patent really is key. Yeah, I love how you describe how when when, when Davis is, is is still in in Nevada making these pants, how he he puts on there, uh, you know, that basically that 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 you know that the patent is it has been applied for because it really is key to this idea of saying these this is the special uh, you know item and and and, it, and it's something that is really unique. Absolutely, um, it was a struggle. I believe they had to try three times with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. Twice they were turned down because there was already a patent for using rivets, little metal rivets, to reinforce shoes and shoes or boots. And the patent examiner kept saying, no, this isn't new. Putting them in pants, is, it's, a, it's clothing, it's nothing new. But Levi hired a patent attorney in Washington to lean on this guy <laughs> until they got their patent. And they were this this lawyer and additional correspondence from Levi and from Jacob finally uh they finally convinced the US patent office that this truly was something unique. Um and it, the the patent papers call it an improvement in fastening pocket openings, which is a very unsexy way of saying it was the beginning of the blue jean. <laughs> so um that the that patent was granted on May 20th in 1973, uh, Levi uh, then uh, made it possible for Jacob Davis and his family to move to San Francisco because, again, Jacob was not, uh, uh, Levi was not a manufacturer. What he wanted, he needed Jacob Davis to oversee the manufacturing. He was, he was a tailor, but he understood the process. So 
he basically, he bought Levi, uh, Jacob Davis's tailoring shop from him so that Jacob had enough money to move to San Francisco. A year later, he sold the business back to Jacob Davis for a dollar so Jacob could resell it. That's one of my favorite stories about the man. That's that's how I got to know the man personally. Is it is the way that he treated Jacob Davis throughout this whole thing? It was it was I thought it was just charming, and and truly again honorable. So Jacob is in charge of the manufacturing. Levi is in charge of the uh, you know of the wholesale business, but they are their heads are always together because one thing the other thing they have to do is make sure that everybody knows that this is a patent. They own it for 17 years, and anybody who tries to make riveted clothing, they're going to take them to court. And they had to do that multiple times. Yet, what you've dis- what what they win the patent for with riveted clothing are not blue jeans as we know them today. And you explain in the book uh, how you know what you know that that what distinguishes blue jeans from what they developed and how they got to blue jeans. I was wondering if you could perhaps just walk us through that very briefly. Yeah. Um, the, when they started to manufacture the riveted clothing, uh, Levi had to lease uh, a manufacturing space. They had to, he had to lease the sewing machines. He hired sewing machine operators, had to bring their own machines with them <laughs> before they got their own factory. Um, and they just, the two men decided to make these pants out of both blue denim and this cotton duck, this off-white duck. Those were the traditional fabrics for men's working pants. And that's what these pants were meant to be. Pant, blue collar laboring wear. Um, denim and duck were um, never the kind of fine fabric that you would make a suit out of to wear anywhere. This is what you wore when you were a miner, a lumberjack, a carpenter, whatever. So they they knew they were making these pants. That was their customer base. So so men had been wearing denim pants for decades. It was the, it was a fabric that was very sturdy. But when Levi and Jacob put rivets in them for the first time, that is a new category of workwear that has has come down to us as the blue jean. Anybody who makes blue jeans puts rivets in them because the very first jeans had rivets in them. It was a, it was a way of of really distinguishing what had just been denim overalls, which was the old name for jeans, and riveted denim overalls, which you know then later on the name was changed to jeans, which is another whole story. So it really was taking something that was that already existed and creating a new category of it, and that's also. I think why it was so easy for them to to convince men to wear these pants. So Jacob was a tailor, so he was he knew how to make a pair of pants to fit a man. All they did was add the rivets. They didn't make a new style of pants themselves. They made traditional men's work pants. Adding the rivets made them stronger. So these men are not walking into a store and saying, "What the heck are these?" It was, "Oh, it's my denim pants with these rivets in them that make them stronger." And that also people very quickly, men very quickly realize this gave them a big economic boost because the the rivets literally did keep the pants together a lot longer. And if you're a miner in Eureka, Nevada, and the closest store is 50 miles away and your pants fall apart, you have to give up a day's pay or more to trek out to a store. But if, you, if your pants are lasting longer because of these rivets, you don't have to go to the store as often to replace them. So this was a, an incredible economic benefit, which both that and the strength of the pants um, and the fact that they were the first were was the kind of things that the company began to communicate in its marketing and when the salespeople were talking to their, their clients in the small retail stores. 
And yet, as you explained, their their uh, exclusivity on the market was only for the period of the patent. And, and this is where I, you know, you uh, reference another uh, aspect that Levi does, which is to, in, a, in effect, make that association. Because nowadays, we often talk about you know Levi's in, in the same way that we might refer uh, to Kleenex as being facial tissue or Xerox in terms of photocopying. How does that association take place? That's actually two different things. That's patent and trademark. So the patent, when you get a patent, you don't, you don't get to keep it forever. An invention has to eventually benefit the public. So originally, it, at least in 1873, it was 17 years, and then the company was able to extend the patent two more years. That meant from 1873 to 1892, Levi Strauss and Company was the only company allowed to make riveted pants. And other, again, other companies did, and they sued them very quickly. However, after 1892, anybody and their brother who wanted to make riveted pants could make the pants because the patent had now gone into the public domain. And a lot of other brands came along, many of whom are not around anymore, Stronghold, Nonpareil, things like that. However, what the, the Levi's name is um, a trademark. So when the company first... Um, made the, the pants, there was a little leather patch on the back, just where it is now. And it just said, it had the company name, uh, uh, you know, patent riveted clothing and the size. But in 1886, the company decided to adopt a trademark, which was these two horses straining to pull apart, you know, a pair of pants. And that they registered as a trademark. And the product was, the product was then called the two horse brand. Other companies had symbols and logos for their clothing. And I think there, there was there were two reasons for this. One was what we would call today certainly brand recognition. But the other part was not everybody in the West was literate and not everybody in the West spoke English as their first language. So if they could go in a store and point and say, I wanted one of those two horse pants, they could get what they wanted. So they registered the two horse logo with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office in 1886, and that trademark has been registered to up to like, this very moment. It is still a company trademark. However, in the 1920s, well after Levi was dead, people started calling the pants Levi's because the name was on the, you know, Levi Strauss and Co. The name was on the patch, and people always like to abbreviate. So, give me a pair of Levi's instead of you know the two horse brand and. That, that just sort of arose. Nobody really knows how. But in 1927, the company registered the name Levi's as a trademark. So that way it could protect itself. It protected its patent and it has protected its trademarks um, ever since the late 19th and early 20th century. Now, was Levi integral to that process? Was he integral to the business? Or was there a point at which he started turning it over to other people to you know, sort of take up the mantle while he focused more upon philanthropic activities? Um, it's very difficult to know how much he was involved with the, the pants business. Um, he had enough on his hands running the wholesale dry goods business. Um, in 1890, he brought his four nephews in, into the business. Uh, they uh, incorporated in 1890, began to issue stock just privately. Um, and the, the, his nephews began to work um, in the business. How much he worked with Jacob Davis is, again, is one of those things that was lost in 1906. But um, Levi had always been very philanthropic. Uh, he gave his first 
charitable donation a year after his arrival. And he gave it to the Orphan Asylum Society of the city of San Francisco. He gave $5 um, in 1854, um, which is an organization, by the way, that's still around in San Francisco. It's the Edgewood Center for Children and Families. Um, but he always was very, fairly philanthropic, both personally and through his business. The company gave $100 to the relief fund for the Chicago fire. Uh, they gave a lot of money uh, to uh, organizations that were helping with uh, disaster, disaster relief all over the United States. Um, he did this, it was part of his faith and also part of who he was as a businessman. But there were areas that it's very clear, I was able to, to really chart where he put his money and his personal time and that tells me again about the man. He was a big booster of the city of San Francisco. He was involved in two different committees to help uh, give work to unemployed men to help build up Golden Gate Park uh, and to do work around San Francisco. He was a founding member and a member till the end of his days of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. He was a big supporter of the new kindergarten movement. Um, which uh, very early on uh, uh, was adopted very early on in San Francisco. What strikes me is that he was very concerned with the welfare of young people. Um, he had a lot of nieces and nephews of his own. Um, it's hard to know what his motivation was, but that's where his heart seemed to be and where a lot of his money went. And the, the big steps he took there began in the 1890s. In 1896, he and some other men learned that the students at the University of California at Berkeley across San Francisco Bay could not use the library at night because it didn't have any electric light. So Levi and his friends took up collection among all of their other merchant friends and raised enough money to install the light into the, in the library at the University of California at Berkeley. And then the following year, the state of California, uh, the state assembly uh, funded a bill to give uh, scholarships to the University of California uh, to send one student from every assembly district to the university. Now in 1890, uh, 1897, there were only 35 assembly districts in California, unlike today. Um, and so this was uh, touted in the newspapers, California Assembly giving money to send one student per district to UC Berkeley. Well, Levi didn't think that was enough. So he got in touch with Jacob Reinstein, who was the president of the Board of Regents of the University of California and said, I would like to um, match every single one of those district scholarships so that every district can send two students to UC Berkeley. Well, of course, the Board of Regents was thrilled. Uh, they immediately named the scholarship, the Levi Strauss Scholarship. Um, and uh, it was, you know, I think it was something like $125, which at that time in 1898 was a nice pile of money for a student. Um, and the only requirement was that they be residents of California. The first class of Levi Strauss scholars, half of them were women that came out of UC Berkeley. And that first class surprised Levi at his home one night in March of 1898 uh, to give him a plaque thanking him, which kills me because that's one of the other things that would have gone up in flames. But th those were the, uh, again, the, the, the parts of his philanthropy that I think really came from his heart about helping young people. Maybe he, maybe he was thinking about how hard it was for him when he was young and how he had to go to work so early. And he was neighbor, you know, he, he went to his synagogue school and that's the only schooling that he had. Um, it's hard to know. I don't want to be a, you know, a, a psycho historian, but um, you can really see that that's where his heart was. He was also, um, he was a member of Temple Emmanuel in San Francisco. And he was, he was one of the advisors 
for the Emmanuel Sisterhood for Personal Service, which was like the women's auxiliary for Temple Emmanuel. They did a lot of charitable work around San Francisco. So um, that was, he, he probably was stepping back a bit in the 1890s, letting his nephews learn the business. But from what I could tell, he was still working up to almost the, the very day he died in September of 1902. You describe how challenging it is to, to get at you know, Levi Strauss, even at this point in his life, when he is this, you know, uh, prominent businessman, this 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 uh, charitable figure, the civic philanthropist, as you call it. And yet you also make this mention that I, that I, I have to bring up because I think it gets to how you reconstruct his life, which is when you mention his appearance in that uh, flyer in 1897, because I, I, I think about what you just said in terms of describing him as this very established, very prominent, very respected figure. And yet you just, you reproduce in the book this uh, color flyer of, uh, of an ad showing just how durable the pants are. And you mentioned how it really speaks to, in a sense, a, a certain uh, humbleness about Levi Strauss himself. Yes, <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. It's my favorite ad. It's a wonderful design, and it shows a man hanging on a fence, trying to get over a fence, while a a dog has his pants in his jaws and is hanging off, you know, hanging in the air, trying to pull this man off the fence. Um, and the, the the caption says, "Never rip, never tear. Wish they did now." And the the face of the man trying to get over the fence is Levi Strauss's face. <laughs> And when I saw that, it just blew my mind. Um, I was very lucky. I was able to to buy that at a at a trade show. Um, I had a, a very um, a robust budget to buy uh, materials, ephemera, and clothing for the archives. And I was very able, to, uh, very happy to be able to get two different versions of that ad. And I just absolutely love that because you know you look at the portraits of the 19th century. Everybody's so serious. All these merchants are so serious, and their black broadcloth suits and their top hats. And here he is allowing himself to be a figure of fun, which basically looks like a copper tone, like, you know, suntan lotion ad of this dog, you know, trying to pull his pants off. Um, to, to me, again, says so much about him. Um, we, the eulogies that came out after his death, you know, people talked about his warmth, and, you know, and, and they said a lot of good things things about him as a person. Uh, but one of my favorite things was this one letter that survives uh, from one of his nieces. It's over at the Bancroft Library at UC Berkeley. And it was a letter um, in which she wrote about Levi going down to the Del Monte Hotel on the Monterey Peninsula. He would go down there to rest. A lot of wealthy men went to this hotel that was established by the Southern Pacific, and which, by the way, was not restricted. Jews could stay at this hotel just like anybody else. Um, and he would go down there frequently. And this letter, his niece is writing to one of her one of her other relatives and talking about, oh, Uncle Levi looks so relaxed or something like that. That just loved it. I, I called him Uncle Levi my entire career, um, <laughs> even even to the the Haas family, which are descended from Levi Strauss's sister, who you know who owned the company. I even called it called him Uncle Levi in front of them, um, and I just that just said to me how much his you know his nieces and nephews loved him. Um, in his will, he left the business to his four nephews, but he left each of his nieces $25,000 in their own right, not to their husbands to administer for them, but directly to his nieces. He left them cash. He gave a lot of money to orphanages, both Catholic and Jewish, to benevolent societies, the kind of societies that help new arrivals um, who might be poor, again, both Christian and Jewish. 
um, he gave a lot of money away um, on his death. And in those days, people's wills were published in the newspaper. So, you know, we were able to see exactly where he wanted to send his money. Um, so all these little tiny glimpses told, told me more about him. And, and the flip side of that for me, which is why he's so interesting to me because he's complicated, is that he would, pardon my French, he was a hard ass. If you didn't pay your bill, he didn't care if, if you went, if you sat next to him at Temple Emmanuel, if you didn't pay your bill, you, you had to you know, pay it right away, or he would send somebody to confiscate the goods that he sold to you. It, you know, he sent the U.S. Marshal to some guy who was actually a Goldwater who bought some stuff in San Francisco and went back to Arizona and didn't pay for it. And he sent the U.S. Marshal after him. It was actually Barry Goldwater's great, great uncle, but that's another story. <laughs> so um, <laughs> um, he was pure businessman. He was pure businessman in that this is the not so pleasant part of the story. He was on the record as saying that he would not hire any Chinese in any of his factories. He had to do that to stay in business because the prejudice that was uppermost in San Francisco, 19th century San Francisco was a prejudice against the Chinese. And if Levi had uh, had his goods uh, made up by Chinese people in his factory, he would have gone out of business. I don't know how he personally felt about the Chinese, but he knew as a businessman that he could not employ them and he had to go on record as saying it. And it's unpleasant. It's unpleasant to, to think about and talk about, but that's who he was. That's what it was like. And that's what you had to do to stay in business in San Francisco. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Yes, I have a book coming out from the University of Oklahoma Press. It's called Arequipa Sanatorium, Life in California's Lung Resort for Women. It's a family story and a local history. Uh, Marin County, which is north of San Francisco, from 1911 to 1957, there was a tuberculosis sanatorium just for women, which is incredibly rare, um, in the wilds of West Marin County, founded by a San Francisco doctor, Dr. Philip King Brown, who himself was the son of Dr. Charlotte Brown, who founded Children's Hospital in San Francisco and was brought up to uh, value women's health in a time when women's health was not valued. Uh, uh, this is a, a personal story for me because my grandmother was treated at Arequipa uh, between 1927 and 1929. She was given three months to live and she lived to be 102 because she got treatment at the sanatorium. And I was able to help rescue and um, revived the archives of the sanatorium, which had been left on the property. And I've been working on this story for over 35 years, and I finally finished it. Um, and I'm very, very pleased that it's being released by University of Oklahoma Press. Congratulations. Thank you very much. And, 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 and thank you for the opportunity to speak to you about your uh, wonderful biography of Levi Strauss. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too. <laughs>